Sports Entertainment Podcast, brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk, and today we're talking about using analytics to sell more tickets and other strategies for finding data and using that for your advantage. And here to give us some insight is Sam Doerr, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Phoenix Rising FC. So Sam, thank you for joining me. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me. So last time we had you on the show, you shared some insight about the club's use of analytics for uh, increasing ticket sales and using marketing dollars and all of these things. But in case our listeners didn't catch that one, can we touch quickly on some of the smart ways that Phoenix Rising is using analytics? And let's start with ticket sales. Yeah, no, I think, you know, as as we go down the realm, it'll, you know, impact every part of the business, especially in the revenue generating side of things, whether it be ticket sales, sponsorships, merchandise sales, even concession sales. And so, you know, one of the big emphasis that that we had this off season, um, you know, back November, December was really to start identifying who our fans were. And, and we thought we knew and we kind of had an idea and you can look at, you know, Ticketmaster data and, and just data that you have in, in your CRM. But one of the things that, that we weren't accurately capturing was uh, you know, what do our fans watch on TV? What other teams do they like and support? Uh, what restaurants do they go eat at? Um, you know, what kind of beer do they drink? And so, uh, you know, we invested heavily um, into a data platform um, and data enrichment um, and data capture in the off season to get a better sense of that. And then that allowed us to to really segment our audiences um, and target them, you know, with messaging. It gives our ticket sales reps uh, you know, when they're on the phones, instead of it being cold calls and looking through the phone book now, you know, they're calling somebody up and knowing what TV shows they like, what kind of food they like, perhaps even, you know, where they live and how much their, their home is worth, um, et cetera. And so that really helps them prepare and have a game plan to, to go into the phone call. Um, and then beyond that, you know, of course, you know, we can segment now uh, in an email blast to sell tickets, uh, a special offer where we know uh, that segment's going to respond well to it. So potentially it's a it's a beer add-on, uh, a cheap beer add-on to a ticket. And we know that, you know, their favorite beer is Four Peaks, for instance. Uh, you know, we can offer them something tied into a, to a Four Peaks beer at our game or, you know, even, you know, beyond that, um, you know, if we want to start going into the merchandise side of things, um, you know, just knowing uh, what stores they shop at, what kind of merchandise they're going to buy. So, uh, we can go down as far as we have to go, even to the point where, hey, this person bought a ticket in 2017, they like Four Peaks, and they've bought a jersey, and, and we can send out targeted segments at that three. So it takes your database, which might be you know, 80,000, 90,000 people, and it might whittle it down to you know, 242 people um, that match those three descriptions. But you know, the return on investment and the return on time is going to be much, much higher targeting that group, knowing... Uh, the buckets that they fall into. Right. Well, it's, it's fascinating to hear just the level of detail, of course, that's available in in analytics. But uh, I'm, I'm curious then, so you, in identifying the fans uh, of Phoenix Rising, who are they? Yeah, so our fan base uh, is very young, uh, which is exciting. And, and, it, and you know, it, it plays into the sport, right, of soccer. And I think uh, in general, soccer and, and the success of soccer in the country and the, and the rise in the last four to five years is because it does appeal to the millennials. So uh, the highest percentage of our fan base is 25 to 34 years old. Um, mm-hmm. It is then 34 to 45. And then the exciting thing is 
the next segment of that um, is 18 to 24. So we have a very, very young fan base, um, you know, different stages of life, right? 10 years makes a difference. But uh, overall, regardless, it's, it's a young fan base that we can grow with um, and that can grow with us. And so that's exciting when, when you're looking at taking a club and a franchise from a USL level to an MLS level. Um, the appetite's there. The fans are young enough that they can grow into it. They're starting families. Hopefully their kids will grow up around the sport and the club. And so um, on our end, that's you know rather appealing um, in terms of an experience and a demographic for partners. Uh, it's great for us on a ticket sales side of things when we start to look at subscription ticketing models. And then it's great from a merchandise standpoint, uh, just in terms of uh, you know that age group. Um, spends more on merchandise than our other age group. So when you put it all together, it's an attractive um, demographic and age group that's really leading the way in our fan base. So to paint a picture then for our listeners, uh, these 25 to 34-year-olds, these are millennials. They have probably played soccer in their history, in their, in their past, and now they're out and watching. They're having a good time. Uh, describe that, that atmosphere for me of these fans and what they're looking for. Yeah, I think the three biggest aspects, um, honestly, are and it and it's kind of crazy to say this, but uh, FIFA, the video game, a lot of people in this in this age category play that game or grew up with that and got them interested in the sport. I think the second thing, I think the second thing is, um, you know, they've grown up now with soccer on TV more often. The TV deals, whether it's here domestically with MLS or the U.S. national team, they're on more they're on TV more often. But the biggest thing is. Um, the English Premier League games that are now on in the morning that um, this demographic has has seen on TV or they're going to bars to watch it with friends or it's been on and they've gotten interested in it. And, and part of that may be due to the FIFA, the video game as well. But I think the accessibility of the sport um, as they were growing up, they were around it more often um, than other ages. And so uh, that feeds into the fandom. And then I think the third thing is um, the youth participation in the sport. A lot of of, of People in the 25 to 34 are, are parents. Um, at least that's what our, our data shows. Or if not, um, you know, they fall into one of the other buckets. But, you know, their kids are now playing soccer and, and they're the youth soccer mom and dad and they're around it and, and they're, you know, more exposed to it. And so what that leads to is we have a knowledgeable fan base, um, but we also have fans who, uh, you know, they like soccer and they like going to the games, but they might not be as knowledgeable, but they have that passion and energy and it's more of a culture thing to them. And so, you know, when you come to a, a soccer game or one of our games, we're not piping in music. Um, you know, the fans generate the atmosphere. And so um, that's that's the beautiful part about it. That's what separates us from maybe some of the other sports franchises here in town or around the country is when you come to our game, it's just different. Um, and that's not good or bad compared to other sports. But when you come, it's just something you probably haven't been a part of in the past because, like I said, it's the uh, ambiance and the energy of the surrounding fans that really add to the atmosphere. And so um, it's something that's unique and, and growing. And, and the beauty of it is the fans can really make of it and grow it um, as they want because they're the ones that are dictating what that atmosphere is. Well, you mentioned the English Premier League. And of course, you've got Didier Drogba. How did that uh, come about and how has that impacted the fan base that you have? Yeah, I think it was a huge help, um, especially last year, right? And so um, new franchise, new branding, new logo, new fan base, new everything, new stadium that went up in less than 60 days. And so you bring in a guy like Didier and, and all of a sudden uh, people start taking you more seriously, especially partners 
uh, fans in the market that's somebody that they now know and and it's not just this cute little startup professional soccer team it's it's a it's a bona fide team with a bona fide star and they're a, an ownership group that showed that they were committed to this project um, and that it wasn't going anywhere and they were in for it for the long term uh, and they were going to invest in the product on the field and also off the field and so um, he he really brought uh, in the first year um, just a lot of credence to what we were doing. And it was obviously a star and a player to market that usually at this level, um, a team's not able to, to do all their marketing and selling around one guy. Uh, and we were lucky enough to do that. So that really helped us you know, build the brand in year one. And I think the beauty of it, though, is um, as we've gotten the fans to the stadium, um, as we've attracted other players because of Didier, to be quite honest, high quality players, and, and we are an entertaining style of soccer and, and we're winning games. We're currently second in the Western Conference um, that fans now come not because of Didier. They, they originally came because of him. It was all to see him. Uh, and that's kind of a dangerous game to play, right? If somebody's just coming to see one guy and then when he leaves or if he doesn't play or if he's hurt, um, you know, what, what's your audience going to be like? And so I think for the first year, uh, it was great because what it did is it attracted those fans to see what we had to offer. And then once they got there, they were sold. And, and now, you know, it's a bonus, of course, when, when Didier plays and, and when he has – uh, one of his legendary moments and, and puts in a, a good performance. Of course, that's a bonus. Uh, but now we're getting fans and, and interested parties and ticket buyers and partners that are committing to the club uh, and not just, you know, Didier. And so um, it's been really refreshing to see that transition from year one to year two. But I think we are not in the place we are now here in year two, you know, without him in year one. Did I read correctly that he um, has some ownership stake in the team? Yeah, that's correct. So that was that was part of you know getting him here to Phoenix into this project was, you know, this is his last year of playing this year. And so he knew that going into last year that he probably only had a year or two left. And so uh, like many athletes, they, they still want to be around the sport. Uh, they want to still be involved, but it's that next step. It's the business step. It's the ownership step. It's the off the field side of things. And so he saw a market that uh, soccer was was not doing that well in, and he wanted to take that to the next level and and saw the potential. Right when you when you look at the city and the market size and uh, the TV shares and the demographic, um, it was kind of a sleeping giant. And so um, you know he identified the project and wants to help elevate this to MLS. And then uh, when we get to MLS, um, you know it goes from there, and, and his decision uh, looks even smarter. And so. Yeah, he, he has a part of the ownership that makes him a little bit more invested too off the field. If we have a big partnership meeting um, that we need him to go to, um, you know, he's a lot more willing to do that as an owner. He puts on his owner hat, not just his player hat anymore. And so um, even little things, you know, the World Cup's going on right now. He's a he's a guest analyst uh, for the BBC over in London. And every time they refer to him, it's Phoenix Rising player and owner Didier Drogba. And so um, from an international standpoint, too, um, trust me when I say outside of Arizona, I think London is, is the most popular place we sell jerseys to. And so, uh, you know, we benefit from that and, and it's been a great partnership and he's in it for the long haul. So even, you know, when he's done playing this year, he'll still be around the franchise in some way. And, and I think that's a bonus for all involved. So that's exciting to hear that Drogba is seeing this as an entrepreneur and he is putting on his entrepreneur hat to, to further the club. And he's, in there for the long haul. Yeah. And I think you see that even, you know, with, with player recruitment, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the product, um, you know, needs to be good on the field uh, and in the Phoenix market, especially uh, it's a city that loves winners. Uh, so in terms of winning and, and spending money on players and the type of players, we, you know, we, when fans come out and people spend money and, and partners 
are investing money in our club, we, we want them to be entertained when they come to games. And so um, our roster even reflects that. And that's, that's part of, you know, is it the best way to win? Uh, we think so. But even if it wasn't, uh, you know, we want to be an entertaining product um, on the field. When fans come every single night to, to support the team, we want them to be entertained. We want we want our team to be um, scoring goals. We want them getting up and down the field. We want athletes. We want speed. And so that's something, too, from a from an on-field perspective, Didier obviously helps us with. But from an off-the-field standpoint, um, he sees that vision and, and helps sold that vision to, to owners and the board and the coaching staff that by putting an attractive uh, product on the field in terms of that playing style will help us sell more tickets. And so, yeah, he's, he's completely involved, goes to meetings. Um, he cares. And, and I think uh, that's just a big advantage for us to have somebody of his acumen and, and his experience um, and his global pull and, and, you know, uh, the respect that we get now when, when we go into conversations and having him on board with us in the meeting or, or not, um, it just takes it to a different Absolutely. level. So getting back to uh, some of the analytics initiatives that you have undertaken, uh, particularly within the last off season, what are some of those things that are really, really starting to pay off now that you're seeing results? Yeah, I think, you know, there's two easy things to, to point to, um, you know, on that end. And, and I think that's the segmentation um, uh, of the data. And so uh, from a ticket sales standpoint, it's targeting families. Uh, we have a family four pack offer, that includes four tickets, um, a meal, and a, and a drink, and it's very, very affordable because that's important to us to have uh, an affordable experience for families. And so we take that data knowing who has kids, and now we're able to target them with the ads that we spend. So we're getting um, better you know, returns on our clicks per ad, um, on our impressions. The ad spends a little uh, tighter, but we're seeing better results because we know who we're targeting. And then the same thing said for when we're sending those emails, the open rates are much higher when, when our reps are, are calling them and offering this and leading with that, I'd say, you know, they're closing the sale 10 to 15% of the time, which, which is unheard of. And so, um, that's been really good for us. And it allowed us to actually capture a partnership as well that we tied into that package because, uh, families from a food side of things was their target market. And so no better way to tie them into something than that, knowing that we're going to reach those families with smart data. Um, and then, you know, another one, obviously, like I mentioned earlier, millennials and, and craft beer, uh, four peaks is, is a local, um, craft brewery company. That's, that's really expanded and, and blown up and part of our ownership group. And so, uh, we have a Phoenix rising lager that we have. And so, um, we target uh, individuals with with a ticket offer and a beer offer um, in that 25 to 34 and knowing that they like Four Peaks and that's been just as successful. And, and I could go on and on about, you know, different offers, even with Amazon where, you know, we'll send out an exclusive offer where if you buy, you know, tickets to the next two matches, you get a $20 Amazon gift card knowing that they have a brand affinity for Amazon, right? Um, and so... Just being able to play those infinite, even our TV and radio spends. I think that's one of the things that, you know, we take for granted. But, um, you know, I could tell you, you know, Family Guy, for instance, or, or ESPN or, or whatever it might be. Actually, one of the late night shows um, are really high indexing amongst our fan base. And so by knowing that um, and doing lookalike campaigns, we're placing our ads a little, uh, you know, smarter um, now from a traditional side of things. And, and we don't do a ton of traditional advertising, but when we do... Um, now we at least know where to place it and we know that, you know, fans that look like our fans and um, are watching those shows. And, and I think we've, you know, we've seen an influx in that. And so even when we're deciding, you know, what TV station should we strike up a relationship with from a media side of things in terms of, 
covering the teams, giving exclusive, getting players into the studio, et cetera. Um, you know, I could tell you the station that, you know, our fans watch the most. And so being armed with that data really helped. So segmentation, both in email marketing and then also within um, advertising. So you're mentioning these lookalike uh, audiences. Uh, are you doing a lot of Facebook marketing then and a lot of Facebook ads? Yeah, all of our digital ads are, are Facebook and Instagram. Um, and, and we're taking a different approach to it. We, you know, used to be the static type approach. You know, we're now in Instagram story ads. You know, our best success is, is with video ads on, on Facebook. Um, but when we're, you know, running the ads, once again, right, it's the demographic. Instagram's a little bit younger than Facebook. So we're doing the, you know, the family four pack offers and some of the traditional ads um, on Facebook, knowing that it's, you know, a little skews a little older. On Instagram, we're, we're pumping out the dollar beer night, right? And the beer offers and the free t-shirt giveaways and things like that. So um, it even boils down to, to, to that um, and just having different creative, different copy, different offers on those platforms, just because we know our fans and, and know where they reside a little bit better than we did before. And so we have a different strategy for each of those platforms. What does your organic audience on Facebook look like? Yeah, our organic audience is uh, 50, just shy of 55,000. So um, in two years, it's a, it's a pretty strong presence. But once again, we go back to having, you know, somebody like Didier Drogba, right? And so he oh. scores a goal in, in LA last year. And, and by the time we wake up the next morning, it has 2 million views. And we had a heck of a goal less than a week ago that didn't involve him. Um, but because there's been so many eyeballs on the club, I think that one has four or five million views. And so um, when you have, you know, somebody of his stature and people are used to knowing at least who the club is and there's been some highlights and he scores uh, some phenomenal goals, you attract more eyeballs, right? National media, global media, et cetera. And so when we have that moment, um, the impression numbers are, are through the roof. But, you know, look, we're probably adding, you know, three to four hundred on, on the Facebook page organically. Uh, I don't think we've ever paid um, you know, for, for followers or ads to follow the page or anything like that. Because to us, uh, you know, we want the engagement numbers to be high. I, I could care less if we have 20,000 likes or followers. Um, if our engagement is through the roof, you know, there's, there's times where there's some teams in our league that have two or 250,000 followers. I know they're not legitimate and, and that's a great story to tell, but their engagement numbers are below us. So to me, it's, it's more surrounding the engagement numbers and the strategy and the content you're putting out than it is, um, you know, the amount of likes, but it's, it's been strong on our end and, you know, Instagram to no surprise is our fastest growing platform. And so, um, you know, we take that into account when, when we're determining what we're posting, when we're posting and why. What are some of the challenges that your social media team is facing in trying to reach the Facebook and, and Instagram audiences and how are they overcoming that? Yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's just having the manpower when you're an organization of, of our size. Um, to do different content for all the channels. I think the biggest mistake a lot of um, teams and franchises and companies do is, is posting the same image on, on all three social media platforms at the same time. Um, you know, there's three different platforms with three different consumers for a reason. And so it would be silly to post the same image, obviously final score graphics and things like that. You have to, but um, you know, we, we want to do something different on all the platforms and our strategy is different on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And so it's just having the manpower and the time to make sure we are day in and day out producing content that's different for all three of those channels and um, trying to avoid posting the same thing on, on all those channels because a lot of people have all three. Some have one or the other and, and they're not all the same consumer, like, like I said. And so um, the biggest challenge is, is just the manpower aspect of ensuring that we have fresh content for each of those 
platforms daily. Has there been an unexpected piece of data that you've come across that's really become helpful that you never thought would have been such a goldmine? Yeah, th that's, that's a great question. I, uh, you know, something I uncovered, I think it was just last week, to be honest, that I was looking through that, that really surprised me. Two things, to be quite honest. One is the amount of um, fans in, in our database that own homes. Uh, and a lot of time when you, when you think of millennials, um, some of our other demographics that index high, owning homes isn't something that usually goes hand in hand with that. I think it's about just north of 80% of our fan base owns a home, which is, which is very high. Um, and very surprising. And so in terms of my strategy, that changed quite a things. It also helped lure in a, a mortgage um, company in terms of a partnership, um, wow. you know, in terms of some of the approaches now to, you know, maybe it's direct mailing, maybe um, there's just all sorts of different things that that, that takes into effect, right? When, especially when we start to talk about homes and families. And so that piece of data is very powerful and we're still mining through that, but it's it's much, much higher than expected. And it's more so uh, of an impact on the partnership side of things so far where we're figuring out what that means for, for ticket sales and, and we'll figure that out. And then I think the other one is, um, you know, the lack of female fans, to be quite honest, we are very heavy male um, and it's continued to go that way. And so, um, you know, we, we've always done things like having yoga on the field. We do that about once a month, except for the summer months when it's just too hot here. And we've always done that. Uh, but now we're taking a little bit more of a serious approach to it because, um, you know, the opportunity is is there, uh, you know, in the female fans to attract more. And once we start <laughs> to attract them, um, this thing can really start to explode. So I think it's it's about, you know, 30 some odd percent of our fan base is, is female, which is very low. Um, a lot of my other stops have been close to 50, 50 or or even higher um, on that side of things. And, and actually the data shows in, in our fan base that. Um, the, the female audience and the female buyers spend more um, per person than the males are. And so there's a huge area of opportunity with them. And so we're starting to craft, you know, special giveaway items. We're, we're doing some, um, some wine and painting type things. We're, we're doing some more interactive things with the players. And so we're crafting that for the second half of the season, because that is, you know, to us, our biggest area of opportunity. And even looking at um, you know, what the ads look like, what the videos look like, you know, does, are they living more on Instagram and do we need to change our content on there a little bit more to, to get them interested? And so I'd say those two pieces of data is the, the homeowners and, and the, the male female split, um, have been the two biggest kind of, uh, things we've unearthed with the more emphasis on data. Have there been any updates on the location of the new stadium and the MLS hunt? Yeah, no. So, I mean, a lot happens, right? I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a daily race. I think things change by the week and, um, a lot is happening. We still feel very good about our position and, and expect, you know, in the next two to three months to have a lot more info to share with the general public here locally and, and nationally and, and feel really strong about our bid. Our, our bid is, is very solid from ownership to, um, you know, whatever it may be. The stadium piece really is, is the only piece that, uh, I guess from the outside looking in, you could say is missing. We we recently uh, released some renderings of what the proposed MLS stadium would look like. From that time, I, I think that was a short two months ago, we've already changed those and, and have some exciting things that we should be releasing um, on that side of things soon. Uh, and then, you know, in terms of the land and the location, we're still evaluating um, numerous different spots. I, I think uh, the beauty of this whole process has been just the amount of people uh, in the area that really value the the organization, the club, and having a stadium site uh, for MLS in their city, whether that's Mesa, Tempe, 
Phoenix, uh, Scottsdale, where we're currently located. And, and we love our current location, but um, obviously the, the more options, the better. And so we're keeping our options open and, and using some of that data like we discussed earlier, right? Where are ticket buyers uh, living? Uh, because that's important to us. And so uh, we are in the final stages of identifying what that site's going to be. And then, you know, hopefully, um, you know, sooner than later, we can make that decision and, and release the new renderings. And then I think, you know, from top to bottom, uh, our MLS bid will, will be completed and the owners will take that to New York and present their case. And, you know, we hope to know by the end of the calendar year if, if we'll be one of those two final slots. Well, I appreciate all the great information, of course, Sam. And thank you for letting me indulge, I guess, a little bit of my uh, Chelsea fangirlness and uh, talking about Drogba. Oh, of course. We'll allow it. And, and uh, I'll have to get you a, a Drogba bobblehead uh, mailed out so you have it. Very cool. And thank you to everyone for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe to articles, podcasts, and create a video from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Shelby Skirhawk, and we'll catch you next time.